Welcome to Big Thinkers, Big Ideas. I'm Dr. Carla O'Dell, CEO of APQC. And in this series, I get to interview some of the most interesting people in the world. And today I'm going to be talking to Peter Corston, who is actually the head of IBM's think tank, the Institute for Business Value. More than that, Peter is a longtime strategic expert in contemporary strategy, top management performance, and he leads the IBM C-Suite study series where he gets to interview and his team interviews literally hundreds of CEOs around the world to see what's on their mind now and what they think the future holds for them. Peter is also an oncoming member of APQC's Board of Directors, continuing a 35-year tradition of IBM's involvement on the APQC board from our very founding as the first founding member of APQC. So, Peter, welcome. I am just delighted to have you here today and um, tell our listeners where you're calling from. Well, thank you very much, uh, Carla. I'm actually calling from uh, the Netherlands. Um, I'm an avid traveler. Uh, my job takes me anywhere, but it so happens that uh, today I am in my home country of the Netherlands. You know, Peter, you um, I, I mentioned that you were heading the Institute for Business Value now, but you have a very unique vantage point, I think, on the history of global consulting in the last couple of decades. I mean, you were with the Boston Consulting Group, PwC, and then for the last 13 years with IBM's Global Business Services. So it's not just one point of view. What would you say is different about clients uh, now than, say, 10 or 15 years ago? Well, we've seen some very, very important and massive shifts. Um, you know, I recall the days when I entered into strategy consulting when there was virtually no data around. If you wanted to know what competitors were doing in another part of the world, as close as, in my case, uh, maybe Italy, you would have to physically travel, go to libraries and pick up uh, information. Uh, or you would go to research organizations, very much like APQC or uh, Gardner or similar organizations and buy the reports and they would be physically mailed to you. Um, it would take you a week to get the information and then you still had to manually enter the tables into your databases. Uh, if you're very lucky, you could get a floppy. So the internet has really you know, advanced the whole profession very much, not only in the way of information accessibility, but also in the way people handle information, obviously. Um, if we take it a bit closer, so as you said, maybe 10 to 15 years, uh, which break, brings us back to about uh, 2000, uh, we also see that the profession of strategy has fundamentally changed. Uh, maybe uh, in a in previous era, so again, to, back to 1990, there was a very elite group of top-end MBA-trained uh, people. I was part of that. I did my MBA at IMD in Lausanne. And uh, I was amongst a bunch of uh, small officers of BCD at the time. There were maybe... 20, 30 offices, uh, each populated with between 50 and 100 people. And that was the strategy lead. Uh, there were just a few companies, McKinsey, BCD, Booz, Bain, um, and they did the brunt of the work. Now um, everybody is doing it. Uh, we've seen uh, many, many more people following MBAs, be that in the U.S. or you know, overseas. Uh, we also see that uh, people that have had their training at McKinsey or BCD or other firms like myself – have entered into business life. So what used to be a very exclusive club of people with you know, limited access to information now is a profession that has grown, wide, that has grown widespread all over the world. Uh, and you find people with a good MBA, with some decent background in strategy consulting, uh, in, in strategy departments, but also marketing departments and 
operational departments like um, you know supply chain management or in finance departments. So the knowledge which was contained in a small group of people is now becoming very widespread. The information they needed, which was hard to get by, um, is now available at the flick of a wrist. So these things are very, very fundamental. And they allow companies to better understand strategies of their competitors within hours to uh, do scenario analysis uh, and do some benchmarking comparisons as to, okay, if I would do this, what would that scenario be, which was previously almost impossible. Uh, so one major change is that more people have the kind of skills, and another aspect is there's much more information readily available. Um, maybe two other elements. Uh, one is the transparency of information. In the past, you would have to second-guess the strategy of your competitor. By and large, competitors are now sharing their strategy openly in annual reports and in forums. There's maybe some secrecy in some firms, but most companies are very open. So you don't have to second-guess what's going on, um, but you have to chart your own course, knowing what others are doing or in which direction they're going. That's a very fundamental change as well. And then finally, globalization has brought to us lower cost all over, lower cost of strategy consulting, lower cost of data, and lower cost of, you know, manipulating the data to come to these insights. So, um, you know, even only 15 years ago, that was all not possible. And now, you know, common practice, have a good guy, have data readily available, do scenario analysis in a couple of days instead of in many, many weeks at millions of dollars of cost. You know, that is, it's been transformative, Peter, I too, I think, in how companies operate, Your, the clients of these consulting firms think in order to support that many more consultants, their firms have changed the way they use external resources. And they're think I mean, we now, they're buying a tremendous amount of consulting compared to what they were buying 15 years ago. If you go back 40 years ago, there was nobody selling consulting but accounting firms. So there, it wasn't even really what we talk about consulting. Um, and, and academics provided the strategy. And it was a dramatically different landscape uh, for consultants and for companies. It's uh, truly changed, I think, how how knowledge work gets done in organizations. They yeah. don't hesitate to use consultants. Yeah, it, it, we should also note that the name consultant has also had much more usage now than 40 years ago. Uh, 40 years ago was primarily used for people that were doing strategy consulting. Um, but over time, and as you mentioned, particularly through the large accounting firms, um, implementation services, whether that's change management or implementation of an uh, ERP system or uh, project management of uh, large transformations, integrations, mergers, acquisitions, what have you, they are all called consultants. So um, I would say if you go back 25 years ago, the group of people that could name themselves consultants, which were associated with strategy consulting, First and foremost, we're talking maybe 10 to 20,000 people around the globe. Now we have over a million people bearing the same title, but they do also much different work um, in projects, in implementation work, and change management. Right. So the term has, you know, gone much wider than it used to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and to another point you made, the access to content uh, has changed the value added that that uh, consultants of, of any stripe have to add. Like APQC provides tremendous amount of metrics and process metrics and, and best practices, and professional service firms and consultants are one of our biggest uh, customers for that. They have to then add value to it 
and their perspective in order to give to differentiate themselves from the other uh, other consultants out there who also have access to a lot of data. So it's really changed that landscape. Um, I'm going to switch gears on you here a minute and uh, go back to the the C-suite study series that you do. You have uh, again a unique sort of access to CEOs. What are and around the world globally? What are those top of mind issues for global companies and leaders, Peter? Yeah, so, uh, you know, just to give a perspective, uh, we started the series of interviewing initially chief executive officers in 2003, 2004. We interviewed uh, about 400 at the time, and over time that practice has grown. Uh, we started to interview chief financial officers, information, human resource, supply chain uh, officers, and so we got a very broad view of profession by profession. And then two years ago, we started to do the board as a whole in one company and then compare companies against companies. The last time we did that, we interviewed over 4,000 CXOs, C-suite members, uh, within a three-month period. It's the largest uh, you know, kind of research uh, of that manner uh, of any firm ever done. And so it allowed us to, to get a perspective on what do boards think about what keeps them busy. And um, one major topic that emerged is that the term that you may know, sustainable advantage, has completely disappeared. This was popular at the times of uh, Michael Porter uh, and, and their peers. People were thinking about, okay, what can I do to really have a you know, sustainable advantage? There's no such thing. Um, there is a competitive advantage at times, but it's contained in time. Something that gives you an edge now may well have disappeared within a half year or at most in two years' time in any industry, whether you're in automotive, in finance. That has to do with the transparency of the market that we talked about before. So you have to constantly evolve your value proposition, your competitive positioning, uh, and do a lot of innovative research to, to you know, develop the things that you're good at. Another interesting aspect of that is that you cannot go it alone. Um, and that has really come upon us over the last 10 years. Uh, up to about 10, maybe 15 years ago, a lot of companies were self-sustained. They were doing the R&D, they were doing the production, they were doing the distribution, they were doing the maintenance and the after-sale service, all as one package. That has completely dispersed. So you will have to buy portions of knowledge or products into your product. A modern-day sports car uh, for a company like Porsche, for instance, is, uh, is largely a, a, a design team that puts a nice wrapper around technologies that they acquire in. Like, you know, the brake system is made by, uh, by Bosch. Uh, the ceramic uh, brake discs are made by specialized companies and so on and so forth. They obviously don't develop tires themselves. They don't typically produce uh, many of the parts that they assemble. They're responsible for the end product, of course, quality, innovation. And in their particular case, they're very good at engine management. So that's their particular feature that they're very strong at. But it's design, engine management, and the rest take the best suppliers and assemble them well. So you cannot go alone, um, and your advantage is temporary at best. Um, and, 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 you know, image, brand are very important components, maybe more so than ever before. Oh, um, as I said, you know, the, probably the industry where you see that the most is the semiconductor industry. We all know Moore's Law, which uh, miraculously is still surviving. Every two years, sorry, every 18 months, you double the performance of whatever component you have, whether that's memory storage, speed of processors, density of screens, uh, you know, the, the, the precision with which the touch uh, enters a, 
particular system, uh, like a touchscreen, all these things double every 18 months. That's unbelievable. And that, that pace we see coming into many, many more industries um, uh, over time, and, and, and you know, it, it's relentless. A second uh, major thing, so in addition to the non-sustainability of advantage, is the access to true talent. Um, in speaking with many CEOs, also myself, but also from our research, CEOs more and more say is my competitive advantage is not positioned in where I am, what factories I have, which patterns I have. It ultimately resides with the quality of people I'm able to attract and to keep in my organization. Um, eventually, if I have the better people, I should win the game. Um, and so the war for talent, uh, which has become a global war, as we all know, where there are some pockets where you know certain talent resides in certain places. Think of Silicon Valley, uh, but at the other end of the spectrum, if you want to buy, you know, good tiles like or floor tiles or wall tiles that happen to be residing in Italy. So you have these pockets where deep expertise comes together and where there's a fierce battle for that talent in those particular pockets. And then thirdly, uh, what we hear is, um, is very relevant for you. You can see people need to understand what's happening all the time. You know, where is the leading edge? What is happening? You know, whether it's cycle time, delivery times, uh, cost of an operation. And this is where benchmarking comes in big time because it allows you to see, you, although you may not know how competitors are changing a metric, you know, so what the underlying activities are, you can see that they're improving on, let's say, uh, delivery time. My favorite example of that is uh, what uh, Adidas and now Nike have done to the um, to the footwear industry in the sports segment. Uh, rather than going into a, a store and buy a shoe, you can go on, uh, on, we on the web and make the shoe that you'd like to have. You can change the color of the stripes, the sole, you know, even the rivets, every single element. And believe it or not, a normal shoe would cost you in the store 90 bucks. Um, for a mere $10 extra, you would have a completely custom-made shoe and it would be at your doorstep in your size specially made for you for no more than $10 extra. That's about 10% extra to have a product completely tailored to your specific need. And uh, as a funny by side, just to illustrate how far that goes, how, how competition is changing, that leads to some um, uh, shoe sellers, so uh, retailers, changing their game because youngsters that do order the shoe online and custom made, have them custom made for them, go to the store to actually get the right fitting. Uh, and, of course, the store then doesn't see any revenue for that. So some stores, when they see youngsters coming in, charge a fitting fee. So if somebody says, can I fit that particular type of shoe, they will say, well, you know, go to the cash register, buy your fitting fee, which typically is 10 or $15. Um, and, and upon showing that, they can fit the shoe. If they buy the shoe, they get a, that money back as a rebate. If they don't buy the shoe, at least the retailer has seen some money. So we see this constantly new changes and you can only actually observe them by seeing the end result is somebody delivering something more quickly is some price going down uh, is there an innovation that leads to a pent-up demand in market share and then you are looking for the underlying root causes again you know uh, much of that can be observed by doing you know constant reviews of, uh, of benchmarks that are available that is a fascinating example how because it leads to what you pointed out to the to the uh, brick-and-mortar retailers, they had to change their business model. I've heard one more variation on it, which you, I know, know about, is that instead of charging the customer a fitting fee, they're charging the uh, the manufacturer, Adidas or Nike, 
a uh, shelf fee. Uh, just Absolutely. They pay to be there on the shelf so that the customer can try it on and then go order it on the web. And at Best Buy, you can actually go to the terminal right there and order it. So it has dramatically transformed those business models, and that's kept those brick-and-mortar uh, companies in business because there is a need for something. I'd like to try the shoe on. So anyway, it's fascinating. So we talked about what's on top of mind for CEOs and the no sustainable advantage, the talent, and the benchmarking. But what questions should they be asking that to get them ready for that that cadence of change, which is breathtaking right now. Yeah, so, you know, if, if your question is, uh, you know, if you're a CEO or, for that matter, a chief marketing operation, finance, information, human resource, supply chain officer, you know, you of course have to set a horizon. And the first question you have to ask is, where is my horizon? In some industries, by the nature of the industry, the horizon is pretty far away. The most extreme example I know is, for instance, the oil and gas industry. I mean, if you're going to dig a hole, you know, between, you know, getting permission and doing the politics around it and then get the physical operation and do the drilling and, you know, in your particular given area, uh, come to the conclusion that there's of value to drill deeper or not and to set up an exploration, that could be as much as 15 to 20 years. That's an extreme industry. Most other industries are have become much, much more short-term oriented. And I, so the first question is, where's my time horizon? How far can I do and shall I plan ahead? And what we are seeing is, in the past, we were asking questions, and I'm talking no more than 10 years ago. People were very comfortable talking about, well, you know, in five to 10 years, I will be doing this or that, or I'm thinking about doing such and so in five to 10 years. That discussion is completely irrelevant in virtually any place we go. The time arose a horizon that people are comfortable speaking about is typically three to five years. So they know what's going on now, that this year. They know what's coming around the quarter, maybe next year or two years ahead. But it starts to become very blurry already at the three-year horizon. And beyond five years, we're hard-pressed to find anybody willing and able to say anything that they believe is going to happen five years from now. So first question is, what's my time horizon? How far do and can I look ahead? And I say it's typically three to five years. So in practical terms, you know, where do you want to be in 2018 or 19 or 20? That's the first question. So the second question then is, okay, you know, once I know the time horizon, what is it that I want to achieve? Is it a market share? Is it in product proposition? Is it a certain kind of innovation? Is it a group of partnerships? Is it geographic expansion? So uh, the second thing is once I have the timeline, where do I want to go? What do I actually want to achieve at that point in time, which I call at the horizon? So where at the horizon do I want to be? At the right side, left side, middle? And then once you know when you want to go somewhere and what you want to achieve, the main question now is what technology am I going to deploy to get there? Um, uh, as short term ago, as maybe five years, um, people were not including technology in every single decision. Um, interesting fact here, uh, we've been asking CEOs one question over and over again since we started uh, now 12 years ago, which is out of 11 factors, pick the three factors that are most important for the future of your company. 
And the interesting thing is technology used to be number six, so it was the sixth most important factor. The last two years, it's become the number one factor for chief executive officers. So everyone understands, if I don't have the right technology, I'm not going to get there. Um, take the example of um, movie industries. Uh, some movie companies also had music operations, and they've seen what happened to the music industry. It digitized. So they would have known that this was going to happen to their movie side of the business as well. Well, somehow that hasn't led them to invent something which we now call the iPad, or if you wish more generically, a tablet. Uh, naturally, that should have come from the movie industry, whether that's one of the, the Hollywood or the Bollywood or the Japanese producers. But if you've seen what happened to the, to the music industry, then you could have predicted this might as well happen over time uh, with Morris Wall, maybe seven, eight years out, to movies. Therefore, come up with an MP3 player, which you call a tablet. None of that has happened. It has come from an outsider that is now taking over that industry. So which technology are you going to deploy to get you to the future? And then the final big question is, what can I learn from other industries? Very often, uh, people are myopic. They say, well, I'm in the automotive industry, and my competitors are doing this, and therefore I'm doing that. But you can lend so much insight uh, from maybe the telco industry or the retail industry or what's happening in the banking industry and vice versa. So the lesson is around the corner, often not within your industry, but in another industry. So my four points are, what's your time horizon? Where do you want to go? Which technology to involve? And then finally, what can you learn from other industries to get there? You know, Peter, just on that last point, it's been APQC's founding paradigm that you can learn more disruptive things from other companies than you can mm -hmm. from your competitors. Then, of course, the transparency of information now has made it even more feasible to do that. Um, and people who don't and are very myopic and only ask about their industry and what their competitors are doing are missing the iPad tablet intervention that's going to come in. So I really I agree with you completely on that one, too. I, I think I am not a bit surprised that technology is number one. It is the source of uh, all efficiency, but uh, not all efficiency, but a lot of efficiency. But it's also the source mm -hmm. of all disruption. It you know can be characterized that way. The uh, yeah. let's talk about that technology because that leads me to an area that I'm very interested in, and I know our listeners are, and that IBM is as well. Is how these rapid advances in analytics and the machine power behind these analytics. You got to have the data, but then you got to have some way to crunch it and make sense of it and have changed knowledge work and consulting and what firms can do. Uh, what, you know, don't, that seems to me like a transformative edge right now. What are your thoughts on that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what we see, it's sometimes called machine learning, uh, but maybe more contemporary also, you know, cognitive science or cognitive computing. And uh, what we see coming together is, if you wish, uh, all the knowledge of the world, think of what Google can do but combined with superior, uh, you know, uh, algorithms. Uh, I wouldn't call it intelligence, uh, but it's getting close to that. Um, many of you will have heard of uh, the Jeopardy game. Uh, this was an IBM contest against uh, some of the brightest people uh, on earth. Um, uh, it's a game played in the U.S. on a daily basis for over 50 years, and uh, Brett uh, Rutcher and uh, Ken Jennings were the best uh, winners. Uh, uh, Brad had won the most money ever in the game and Ken Jennings had won the most uh, often in, in sequence ever in the game 
and uh, IBM put a machine together to uh, outcompete them. And it's a pretty witty game where you have to have a lot of knowledge, but able to shift, you know, at, at the flick of a wrist, but also have to understand whether you know something or not and put money on whether you think you have the right answer when you haven't even heard the question. Um, and so we won that game. Um, if you talk to the people that designed the machine behind it, they say, you know, in hindsight, winning chess from Kasparov in 1998 was a child's play. You know, that was leading edge. This was leading edge. We're talking 2011, so it's already four years ago. It happened in February of 2011. So we've taken that now into industries, and um, we're doing deep research in, uh, in oncology, more specifically in breast cancer. Um, as you can imagine, there's so much being published that if you're an oncologist or a surgeon in that area, uh, it's impossible to you stay abreast of all that's known. And that's known. But with a good machine, um, and if you're diagnosing a patient, you can ask better questions. You can be led to newer technologies or newer solutions that have been proven, that have been published, but you simply couldn't keep up with that. So that's one area. And we'll see that cognitive science invading virtually everywhere, whether that's in manufacturing technologies or medical, as I just explained, obviously in education. Uh, but, but you'll see that coming around. And the essence of it is all the knowledge in the world, but interpret it for you in your individual situation in the right way. So you're not going to ask a question and go through reams and reams and reams of potential answers only to find that your answer is on screen 533, which you would never go to. But in your specific situation, given your circumstances, you know, what would normally be appearing on page 533 is now the first answer you see. And you see the certainty with which the machine will tell you, well, I'm 90% sure this is the right answer. But the machine will say, well, I don't know at all. I'm only 30% sure, but this is the best I can come up with. So as a recipient, you not only get you know, the best possible answer, but you also know the certainty with which that possible answer is a good or a bad answer. So it's a complete shift of paradigm on how we are handling information and how we're distilling from all that is available in the world the relevant answer to you. The, uh, so, and, and this will, in turn, then drive all kinds of innovation in all kinds of industries um, and, and open up new layers of competitive advantage. And, and the question is really at the table is, how am I going to use it? Um, we see applications. I'll, I'll give a live example of what we're actually, as IBM, putting into the market very successfully. And uh, it, it's easy to comprehend. If you're in a call center, uh, in a traditional call center, the call center agents have scripts. So a, a person calling in with a certain question, uh, the call center agent quickly types that particular phrase, and he or she gets a script of what to say, which ans and questions to ask, and depending on the yes or no, it gets the next question, next question, next question, leading to an advice or a yes or a no or things like that. Well, what is now changing is the, the agent, the intelligent machine, the cognitive computing computer is listening with the recipient. Here's whether the person is irritated or not, connects the, the caller, um, the client, to the same agent that has been dealing with the same person a week ago, uh, picks up the information from what discussed then, and comes up with spontaneous suggestions. And this could be, for instance, that if the situation is such that the claim is warranted and actually where the mistake was made, that a spontaneous offer is, well, I'm really sorry, sir, that this happened. Can I offer you a 15% rebate and you can do cross-selling or 
you know, on, on the policy for next year because this should not have happened. It's our mistake, and on behalf of the company, I can give you the 50% rebate. That, in today's world, in the classical world, needs approvals, creativity of the call center agent, um, and doesn't come up spontaneously. That can all be done by this kind of aided intelligence. One very important aspect to, to keep in mind with that is, and this is deeply in the philosophy of, of IBM that I work with, is these machines and, and similar things that we're doing on apps, which we're developing with, uh, with Apple, will never replace human being. You know, the ultimate judgment is with a doctor, with a pilot, with the nurse, or with a call center agent. So these are aids to amplify the human intelligence, the human empathy, and, and you know, to put what human beings do on steroids, get them more quickly to the answer in a more sympathetic way, and make them more efficient and more impactful. Uh, I love the way you put. I love the way you put that. One of the fears, you know, people knowledge workers have is that, oh my goodness, they're not going to need a radiologist anymore to interpret because the machine can do it. Or in the case of oncology and breast cancer, or the call centers, they're not going to need me anymore. And what has always happened historically is yes, some jobs disappear, but this augmentation of other jobs and opens up all kinds of opportunity that I don't think we can really see right now what those are going to be. So I, I yes. Yeah. So I take, I tend to take a more positive view, but it's the natural, uh, there will be loss in this. There will be job loss. I think that's just a fact, and it always is. Well, that, 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 is that, that is absolutely true. But if we play the game well, you know, at the global level, at the local level, you know, as societies, you can well imagine with aging populations in Japan, in Europe, and maybe later on uh, sometime also in, in the U.S., um, there's a bigger need for, you know, care. And, and so if we can free up minds and hands to help people that need care, um, uh, you know, uh, whereas we uh, gain economic value by loading off things that machines can do, which, uh, you know, no, normal human beings used to do, then that's all leading to advantage. I think, think back of, um, of Henry Ford, um, who famously said, you know, if, if pe- we would have asked people what they wanted, they would have said, you know, I want to have faster horses. They would have not come up uh, with a car. And, and nobody will argue that a car has made the world more efficient, more pleasant, and, and, and smaller in, in the, if you want to see it that way. Uh, so it's not that inventing a car has put you know, uh, the horse carriage out of business, which it has, but it has opened up you know, much more value for everybody in the world. Um, and, and many more people would, you know, other than for hobby, detest having to go from New York to Washington uh, by, uh, by carriage. Uh, apart from the time, the, the, the lack of comfort and the, the, the security, um, you know, would be would be major uh, uh, negative factors in that. What you talked about and the wonderful examples you've given are examples of transformation, that there's, uh, you know, a step change in things. And the trick is to be able to see, you know, into the future what is going to be the next big thing because it's not going to be a total discontinuity. It's already in front of us. What's that wonderful phrase, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed? So with your incredible, you know, your vantage point, what do you think the next big thing is that we're probably already sitting on? Yeah, so the next big thing is maybe a number of big things, um, and they're they're coming at great speed. So one, uh, which I think we can all see, is uh, things are getting, which we call mobile. So whether that's at your wrist, 
with, uh, for instance, the Apple Watch coming or, uh, you know, on your phone, on your tablet, but it's with you when and where you need it. And it's not the device that's with you, but it's the information that you need then and there. So if you're walking the street, now you would have to look at the map, interpret the map. Well, in the future, your watch will give you one or two buzzes. One buzz is go left here, two buzzes is, you know, go right here. And, and so it will be integrated in your daily life. Mobile is going to be everywhere uh, for any kind of employee, uh, very much like it's now for any, you know, person in their personal life. People have been complaining. You know, my personal life is so easy. I can see the weather. I can read the news. I can have my email. I can WhatsApp. Why is this not possible in companies? Why is it not possible in governmental organizations? That is all going to happen over the next five to ten years. So what you have been experiencing, and let's remember, the smartphone is now no more than, let's say, about eight years old, less than a decade. And it's completely revolutionized the way we live our personal life, the way we listen to music, the way we order goods, the way we watch movies, uh, the way we consume news, the way we interact with our friends. Well, in very much the same way, that is going to happen within uh, you know, organizations between employees as well. The second big thing underpinning that, if you wish, is uh, super analytics. Uh, very much to what I was talking about in cognitive, more and more so, you will not have to press a button to get to the information, but uh, since the device will know where you are, provided you have given permission to the device to let the device know where you are and to access certain services, that's of course under your control. Um, but the device will then, with its analytics, inform you about maybe an opportunity to buy something or maybe, you know, the fact that a friend is nearby and that you had said, I'd love to, you know, have a coffee with, uh, with Joe if, if Joe happens to be where I am. And now it's very cumbersome to find out where your friends are. If you're traveling a lot, that will all be super easy. So these super analytics that bring back all the information in relevance to you when and where you need it is going to be a huge revolution. And this will merge both personal uh, as well as professional lives. And it all comes together. It's hard to imagine, uh, but it will, you know, make make your life richer. It will make it possible to more effectively make use of your time. Now, of course, you can switch it off and, you know, just you know, go to the movies and pretend you're not not where you are. And uh, you know, that's entirely possible. But if you want to be super efficient and make the most out of your time, that time will be is right around the corner, and there will be much more of that than ever before. Ultimately, that leads. Net, net to more brain time for every human being on the planet uh, because you don't have to sort out things you don't have to do the practical things so much and so there's more time to think more time to emotionally engage with with your surrounding be that your spouse your family um, uh, your colleagues or maybe the general public at large or you know even if you walk through a museum there's more information and and you know more tips will be given on things that you know devices know you like or would be interested in or you know, avenues that you would normally you know, explore will be opened up to you by suggesting, well, go take a look at here or try this restaurant. You probably like it or, you know, there's something new happening. So all that, you know, is taken out of your hands so that you can think more, engage more, and, and you know, do what you do with much more of yourself. Uh, I think there's a great future ahead. Technology has served mankind over hundreds of years, you know, starting with a wheel, um, not in all cultures, but in many cultures, um, and, and it's ever-evolving, and we're right at the brink of a very big leap of that with cognitive computing. Peter, I so hope you are right. I love this scenario of the future. I think that 
all of us covet the opportunity to engage more fully with the world and yet not uh, be distracted by it, to go more deeper as well. So I think that the technology has the opportunity to do that for us. Peter, this has been an enormously interesting conversation. There are several uh, points in here that I think we can explore further, but unfortunately that's all the time we have today. We will go deeper in the future. Thank you so much for joining us on Big Thinkers, Big Ideas. And to others, if you'd like to learn more about APQC, please go to our website, www.apqc.org. Thanks for listening and have a great day.